Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today with episode 470 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, what are we going to talk today about? We're going to, well, the title of today's show is, What is Modern Survivalism? What is it all about? Um, and I'll give you kind of my history with the term uh, and why I chose to make it part of the entire culture of the Survival Podcast as I founded the show and began building it a little over two years ago. Before we do that, though, let's uh, take time to do our housekeeping segment today. Housekeeping item number one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show's here every day. Uh, Monday through Friday, at least uh, most Monday through Fridays. I did have a vacation day this week, not something that happens very often. Anyway, uh, we do have something kind of cool today. We have something that doesn't happen very often. We have a new sponsor because I've been sold out of spots for sponsorship for a long time. And once a sponsor comes on, you guys are so great, they tend not to leave. We did have one sponsor turn over, and because of that, we were able to welcome a new sponsor, which is KnifeKits.com. Again, KnifeKits.com. And uh, when we put them for review in front of the moderator review board, uh, they came up five stars all across the board. Everybody in like the Blade forums and things like that loved them, so we were happy to welcome them as a new sponsor. So please check out today uh, a very rare occurrence, a new sponsor at the Survival Podcast, KnifeKits.com. You'll see their banner at the top of the stack on the Survival podcast and uh, you'll also find a link to them in the show notes as always next up today the lifesaver 4000 water bottle from ready-made resources really a great product and i want you to check out that product i also want you to consider the life uh, lifesaver jerry can from uh, ready-made resources as well uh, because it's just purifies a hell of a lot more water um, as far as the volume that you can carry and take with you so check out those two products Fresh, clean water is one thing you absolutely have to have for your survival. We'll be talking more about your survival here in a minute. But check out uh, Lifesaver and all the great products from ready-made resources. Uh, next, I wanted to remind you real quick, Friday this week we'll be doing a contest. We'll be giving out two soil cube makers. And this is a, a product by a listener, uh, some guy that just got motivated. He was a wood shop type, uh, ran a little wood shop, decided to make this product. And what it does is it makes cubes. So you start your seeds in little compressed soil cubes instead of pots that are either thrown away or expensive or break or decomposable. There is no pot. It's just a cool little cube. Uh, I'll post a link to his video where he shows you how that product works. And I was, I've got one. I've been trying to do a review, but it keeps pouring rain every time I get close to uh, going outside to shoot some video for that. And I don't want to make soil cubes in the house uh, for obvious reasons. So I wanted to remind you that. 
Gear Shop, check out our Gear Shop update. All of you that pre-ordered the uh, the mugs, they're in. They're shipping. Uh, I, I got my notice that mine shipped yesterday. Yeah, I ordered them just like you guys do from the gear shop. Uh, Sis Wolf want to know why I ordered them. I said because I'm supporting my own endeavors. So uh, those are shipping out. You should get those within the next couple days if you pre-ordered. We do have inventory in now. If you order them, uh, I would say uh, today she's still probably shipping the last few. There was like 140 orders that had to go out uh, yesterday. So it was hell day for the gear shop. But I'd say if you ordered them any time through the rest of this week, you'd probably get it shipped right away. All right. Um, last but not least, I want to remind you guys about the uh, Member Support Brigade. Support the show at 20 cents an episode. Uh, it, that's really what it's, it comes down to is you guys decide that, you know, listening to the show, it's worth two dimes every time it gets on the air. I'll support the show at $5 a month or $50 a year. I'll leave it at that today because I want to throw one more thing out there. I want to start asking you guys to do something for me. Last year on our one-year anniversary, we did a call-in show. People called in and said, told America what it was like to become a modern survivalist, what it was like over the first year of the show and what the changes they've made, what they've done, gardens they've grown, debt they've paid off, all kinds of cool stuff. I'll put a link to that show. It, I think that episode 500, which we're about 30 away from now, sometime in August we'll hit that, should be the second call-in show like that. So if you call in to 866-65-THINK, you can leave me a question that could be on a Friday show, uh, or f until uh, episode 500, you can leave up to a two-minute message telling me what the show's been meant to you, your family, your life, and what the concepts have meant to you, your family, and your life, not just the show. And if you've always been a prepper, you know why you've always been a prepper and what how the show's helped you expand that, and we'll play that. The, the episode 500 will be the audience. So if you're not sure what I mean, listen to the, the episode I'll link to today, and we'll start, you know, I'll kind of remind you every day from here on out, get your calls in, and we'll see if we can make episode 500 even better than the previous uh, one-year anniversary show. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic. Well, I, I decided it was a good day to maybe back up and talk about some things that we've talked about before, but also to expand on them from a different viewpoint, kind of make a show that would be equally fitting to the brand new listener that showed up today to listen to 470 as their first episode, and also would be a good episode for somebody that's listened to every episode up till now that wouldn't just be like a rerun. So I, I thought about the fact that every time I'm interviewed, there's a question that I'm asked, and I don't really ever ask myself that question here and present it to you, and that is, You call yourself a modern survivalist. What is modern survivalism? And I think to really answer that question, and not, not a way that I would do it in an interview somewhere else, but here for this audience, I have to talk a little bit about the history of that term with the show, where it came from, why I came up with it. And the reality is it's actually synonymous with the creation of the show in the first place. Back in, uh, in 2008, Uh, early 2008, I got a hold of my first iPod. I broke down and bought one. I'm a technology guy. I should have had one right when they first came out, but I kind of always resisted what I call a proprietary technology, anything that locks me in. With Apple's iPod, I have to use Apple software, and I always saw Apple as a little bit arrogant, but I decided I had a lot of clients that were asking me about podcasting, and I couldn't really work with podcasters without knowing the iPod. So very early in 2008, that might have actually been 2007 in the fall, I got an iPod. And I started looking for podcasts about things that I liked, hunting, fishing, guns, and survivalism and preparation. 
And the stuff I could find from the survival niche at the time, there's some podcasts out there now on prepping, and I'd like to believe we've been kind of a pioneer there, and we've kind of given some people some impetus to, to, to do this thing. But at the time, there was no podcast on prepping or survivalism that was you know regular. And what I mean by regular isn't normal thought, but came out at a regular frequency. There were guys that actually did a couple shows, and they were pretty good, but they had done like you know two, and the last one was like eight months ago. So you knew another one wasn't coming. And the stuff I could find that was regular, that was kind of found in that niche, was about you know black helicopters and the New World Order, and you know some of the stuff that was still really rooted in 1970s hype about nuclear war, and didn't acknowledge the modern change of times. And I thought to myself, there has to be somebody out there talking about today, about the real threats of today, not the imagined threats of today, not the fact that, you know, the New World Order is going to roll over us and take over and throw us all in concentration camps. People aren't going to listen to that unless they already are into this, you know, uh, this fantasy world, so to speak. That there were real legitimate threats, and sure, world government is a threat, but not in this, this, this uh, maniacal way that it was being presented. So I started looking for anybody, bloggers, anybody who was talking about this in a context that made sense to me. And I just started because I'm an internet marketer and I, I'm familiar with you know what you call variable search terms. So I started just trying every search term I could and one that I came up with was modern survival and modern survivalism. So I threw that into Google and I basically found nothing. I thought, wow, nothing. So when I launched this show... That term was in my mind. Uh, that term was uh, at the forefront of, of my thought process, that that's what I was going to talk about. Now, I'm not saying no one ever did it or said it or wrote it before me. I'm saying at the time that I launched the Survival Podcast, I couldn't find anybody using that term anywhere online in the context of, you know, a difference or a nuance that was somehow different from primitive or uh, uh, traditional survivalism. So it was, to me anyway, my own word, and I could make it mean anything that I wanted. So when I say what modern survival, and the reason I go through all that background, so you understand, when I talk about what modern survivalism is, I talk about what it is to me. So if somebody somewhere else... As a stand-up person that's doing a good job, that's contributing to the industry, has a different definition of it than I do, that's okay. I'm not saying they're wrong, and I'm not saying they ripped off my concept and altered it. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just saying that this is something that I came up with, and I evolved in this community we've created independently uh, from anyone else using that terminology. So the difference is, if they're there, should be expected and accepted. Um, so when I started thinking about this and looking at it, my first thought was, we have to understand, if we're going to talk about being a modern survivalist, uh, survivalist and trying to survive in our modern era, where the hell this desire to survive stems from? And we have to look at the fundamental nature of a human being and understand that all human beings are survivalists. The most unprepared idiot in Manhattan who keeps her clothing in her oven because it's not necessary to cook and uses all her kitchen space to store things like makeup and other crap and has no food in her house. And we actually talked about people like that in an article and listeners sent in a while ago. They call them kitchenistas. That bimbo, and she's a bimbo, I'm sorry, if you live that way, you're an idiot. 
If you have zero food in your home, not even a box of freaking crackers to go one day, you're a moron. That moron is still a survivalist. And what I mean by that is if I put that moron in the center of Fifth Avenue and a crazy taxi driver is barreling down at her in her you know, high heel black stilettos, she's going to do everything she can to get the hell out of the way. I didn't say she was a good survivalist. I said she was a survivalist, meaning that she has a desire to survive. All human beings are wired that if we sense danger, we're going to get the hell out of the way. A speeding car, somebody throwing a punch at you, you duck, you cover, you do something. If you go to a place and you look at it and you get that feeling that it's not a safe place, generally you leave. If you need to go in, then you take additional precaution. Because all human beings are hardwired survivalists. So I look around at all the people that are clueless. I look around at the idiots that are keeping their clothing in their ovens and their refrigerators and say it's like shopping. And yes, that's true. It really Google Kitchen Easter and you will see that these people are real people. I did not make them up. So I look at people like that. I didn't know about those people back then, but there's so many people that personify that with the stupidity. And I see people are prepared for nothing. The greatest stock market crash we've ever seen is about to hit us square between the eyes, and these idiots are all blind. And I thought, wait a minute, human beings are wired for survival. Why don't they see the danger? Why aren't they taking precautions? And actually, the first statement was the answer. It's not about why they didn't see the danger, it's the fact was they didn't see the danger. And I realized that in our modern society, we've gotten to a place of such complacency due to all the wonderful technologies and systems that we've created that people no longer see the danger. That's why they act like idiots. They're not stupid and they're not not survival-minded. They've been lulled into a, a, a sense of complacency that things will always be okay. And I understood that the human mind seeks equilibrium. This is why we create societies. We'll talk about that more in just a second. But the human mind seeks a lack of stress. The human mind wants that. The, 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 the constant flight or fight puts stress on the body. And what you're really looking for in the fight or flight response is to get to a point of safety. When you put a human being into a point of relative safety, if there's anything that the mind can do to convince itself that that safety is permanent, it will do it subconsciously because it's good for the physical body. That's the mind trying to regulate the physical body. Meaning that if I put you under stress long enough, you'll die of a heart attack. I can, and we can do this with a laboratory animal. I can take a rat and I can put him in a little environment and if I constantly stress him, eventually his little rat heart will just pop and he'll die. And it's been done. It's kind of demented, I think, but it does prove a point. That stress kills. And that we, when we look at societies that have really old, old people as a normal part of their society, they're low-stress societies. And even with modern medicine, when we look at people keeling over at 40, they're high-stress societies. And we find that there's even primitive societies that are high-stress, and we find there's even some modern societies that are low-stress, and they, they bear out both ways. And it was this fundamental reality that the mind doesn't want to see danger unless it's necessary. I don't want to realize that walking in the street can get me run over, and I won't get broken from that until I see the car coming at me. That made the average person walk in a slumber. 
because they didn't want to think about the fact that the food might not be at the grocery store. And then, even when they were told that, they would walk into the grocery store, and they would look at these deep, long, wide, beautifully well-lit aisles, miles and miles of food, and in their mind, that was enough food for a long time anyway. How could that grocery store run out of food? And it was real easy for them when a snowstorm or something came along and the stores got empty to just consider that a, 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 you know kind of a, a random event that's not really repeatable. And to not allow the dots to be connected that if this was a longer-term event, there would be no resupply. And then how much food is in the Kitchenista's house? And all these things played into this modern world. This modern world that has so much redundancy built into it. This modern world that has made it normal to live into your 80s and 90s. Absolutely normal. You know, you might be on 75 medications, but they'll keep you alive. Quality of life might suck, but they'll keep you alive. And that has resulted in complacency. So modern survivalism, instead of looking at all of the modern technology and the modern systems and considering them inherently flawed in the fact that they even exist, acknowledges their contribution, but accepts their limitations. And that was the entire concept I came to this community with when the community was one person, me, and I was hoping somebody else would show up. That we have wonderful things in this world, but they are all limited. The food system is got so many places where it can fail. First, we have to grow the food. There's a myriad of things that can destroy the growth of the food. But fortunately, we grow food all over the world now. But our farming land is, is actually shrinking. The fertility of our land is shrinking. And the threats to our harvests are, are, are growing. And the amount of water we have available to irrigate our crops is, is depleting while the global population is increasing and putting greater demand on a diminishing system. That that in itself was a weakness to the food system. Hey, but you know what? Wealthy countries always have their first dibs at the food supply. So the United States people look at that and go, well, some people might starve somewhere, but it won't be us. Well, that's arrogance. It's arrogant to believe even when you're at the top, number one, you'll always be there. But number two, that what affects the least of us can't affect the greatest of us. Is arrogance. We all have to eat. We all get up every morning. If we put pants on, we put them on one leg at a time. We put shoes on, we put a shirt on. We're all human beings. We are all hurt or killed by the same things. And we are all uh, made whole and pleasured by the same things. Whether we're poor or rich, it doesn't matter. Additionally, even once we grew the food and we got it into the distribution chain, we had all these other points of failure. Food doesn't just magically get matter energy transported from you know a place that it's grown in Australia to a store shelf in Dallas, Texas. It has to get shipped. Once it gets shipped, it has to be received. It goes into a receiving depot, and then it is distributed through a multi-tiered distribution chain to a local warehouse where it then has to be distributed to the actual store. And then it has to be sold before it spoils or it's discarded. And that any way, place along those multi-tiers of distribution, there is a potential for failure or contamination. So our food supply can be contaminated or it can fail. We also have the reality that the only way we get this stuff to move now is with the use of oil. 
And even if there's still oil, if it goes up to a point where truckers in this country are paying $7.50 a gallon for diesel fuel, they're probably not driving. Or if they are, the cost of food skyrockets. That that food was threatened. Fundamental reality. And because all of these things in modern society work, I only go through the food supply because it's close to home. You got to eat. You probably ate today. You'll probably eat tomorrow, right? So it's close to home. That's why I talk about that. But every other system of support kind of works the same way. And everybody walks around, you know, not everybody, but the vast majority of society today walks around oblivious to the fact that any of these things could fail. Most homes in America do not even have a real what I call blackout kit. A couple flashlights, some candles, crank up radio, you know, basic stuff. You know, the lights go out and people are scrambling. Where's that flashlight in the dark? Instead of having a basic setup in one place, most people don't even have that. The lights go out all the time. All it takes is a thunderstorm, excessive energy use, or some ass clown hitting a pole. Right? I mean, it, it's, it, an ice storm can put it out for weeks. And people don't have this basic thing. So, of course, they weren't going to kind of higher levels uh, of, of preparedness. And it was all because of chosen blindness. Because the mind doesn't want to see danger unless it's absolutely necessary because generally it puts stress on the body. So I had to come up with a method of survivalism that didn't stress people, that actually made their lives better. That was the core of what I meant when I said modern survivalism. That's why it's helping you live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. So that the mind will accept the preparation because it benefits you now. And without that, it's a very hard thing to sell preparedness to the unprepared. Because the unprepared already inherently is in denial of danger. Not because they're stupid. Not because they're bad people, but because that's how human psychology works. That's how normalcy bias works. Everything's okay. As long as the TV says everything's okay, everything's okay. And conversely, and more dangerous, when the TV says things are not okay, they're not okay, oh my God, what am I going to do? That's what the unprepared person sets them up for. A greater stress level in a crisis. At a time when they're most vulnerable, but they don't see it. And to really understand this, we had to ask certain questions. First of all, why the hell do we build societies as human beings in the first place? And I don't mean family units and, and, and traveling bands and the nomad lifestyle. Why do we build cities and towns and states and nations? Why do we create these tiers in society of achievement? Some people are doctors. They're healers. Some people are educators. Some people are builders. Some people are leaders. Some people are, are professional barterers. That means they're salespeople. Some people build technology. Some people use technology and push it to see how much they can do with it. Some people transport goods and services. Some people manufacture goods and services. Some people grow food. Why do we do this? Because as a, as a whole... A society can do more than an individual can, or even a small group. A society can set up a division of labor where each person is able, if they're in liberty anyway, not communism, to choose their own talent, go into a field of their own talent, and become the very best at what they do, and thereby contribute to the society as a whole, and in return, 
get something in return for society. So if you're a doctor and you drive a Porsche, good for you. Because you save lives. You deserve to drive a freaking Porsche. You know, I was at the hospital when my wife was going to get surgery on her brain uh, many years well, not many years ago. It's about three years ago now. And all the doctors had these beautiful cars. I mean, you know, Porsches and, and sports cars and everything. And I was standing, and they had this actual hospital actually had valet. And I was standing down there waiting for my car. So I could run to the house and get some things for my wife. And this is actually after her surgery. And the doctors had their own parking right there, and they all had these nice cars. And I'm standing here with another guy's waiting for his car. And he saw one of the doctors walk and get into this Porsche and drive away. And he made, I don't remember what it was, but he made a negative comment about the guy and having this nice car. And I said, you know what, buddy? One of those guys just basically saved my wife's life. I don't care if he's driving a freaking Ferrari. He's entitled to it. He put 10 years of his life in before he even was considered a doctor by society. And now, and this is a neurological hospital where people operate on, you know, the spine, the brain. And now he saves lives and you begrudge him his car? See, in societies that are run by liberty and freedom, the more you achieve, the more you get. That's why we create societies. That's the motivation behind a society. It's not supposed to be a collective where everybody ends up the same no matter how much they do. From each according to his needs, right? From each according to his ability to each according to his needs. It's not about your needs. It's about your desires. That's why societies are created. So that people can live as they really are and who they really are and find a place to fit in and contribute. And in general, when run in liberty, which is hard to find anymore, the larger the society, the more opportunity there is for you to do whatever it is that you really want to do. That's why the Internet has made so many young people wealthy. Because it made the society, the Internet society, the one that just jumps the bounds of nations, it made that society bigger. It made it huge. It made it the whole world. And it made people like me that are eccentric and loud and obnoxious sometimes able to build a business in a world like this because the society expanded. And because I was able to reach people like me across state lines and across national borders. Modern survivalism hinges on that fact. That societies will always eventually rebuild even if they collapse. We don't just prepare for a collapse, we prepare to rebuild. People say, well, isn't it better just to have food and, and bullets and seeds and all the stuff you need in medical supplies than to have gold and silver? Well, the, the, the food and all these preparations are for a collapse, whether it's a small short-term collapse of a local area due to something like a hurricane or a massive national collapse due to the collapse of the United States economy. Both of which can happen. One happens all the time. The other one far less likely, but a much bigger impact. That's what all that stuff's for. From losing a job, no debt, food supply stored up, a good garden in the backyard. No, you know when you have all those things going for yourself, living within your means, and you lose a job's not a big deal. You find a new job, take your time. You've got time. There's no pressure. So from something as mundane as a job loss to as traumatic as a hurricane to as expansive and, and massive as a national collapse. That's what all of the prep stuff is for. 
Gold and silver is, well, we're hedging against the fact that the value of the dollar has declined every freaking year since 1913 when you average it out a great deal. And a dollar today doesn't buy what a dollar bought 10 years ago. certainly doesn't buy what a dollar bought 20 years ago. And in spite of little periods of deflation, sooner or later, inflation always kicks in because of the way our monetary supply. So we have it for that. We also have it for if we have that big collapse, eventually society will rebuild. You have to have something for money. And paper ain't going to get it in that type of a scenario. So that's why we added gold and silver, because of the reality that societies always rebuild. So why do societies always rebuild? For the same reason that they're created in the first place. When I first started talking about this, I'd get emails from people, why are you such an optimist? You know, I thought, I'm not really that much of an optimist, I'm more of a pessimist. Actually, I am more of an optimist, but I expected the public to see me as a pessimist, because here I am talking about total economic collapse, I was out screaming in the beginning, hey, the stock market's about to collapse, get your money out of it, talking about pandemic flu threats, uh, talking about even some of like the really long shot, not likely to happen in our lifetime, but you know, going to happen someday, you know, asteroid impacts and things like that. And I expected to be seen as a pessimist. And now these people saying, you're too optimistic. What the hell do you want me to talk about? You know, the earth spontaneously combusting? And what they meant was, I always talked about society rebuilding. They said, why do you think society would rebuild? Well, for the same reason it was created in the first place, because as humans we create societies. I believe if we took, let's say, a thousand people on a ship, and we put them on an island with lots of fresh water, good fertile land that could be farmed, lots of building materials, and we took a good uh, snapshot of, of society with different skill sets, and then we gave them enough food that everybody could live for two years, that they would survive, that they didn't have to go out and start killing each other right away, and... Um, there's no stress for two years, but said, you guys are going to be here for ten. So in the next eight years, you got to figure out how to feed yourselves and everything else. Bye-bye. You came back ten years later on that island, there would have been some some sort of warfare uh, and, and some sort of conflict. You might even have two tribes built up at this point. Um, but likely what you would find is a society with everything in it uh, that we would expect to see in any society. You would see a form of government. You would see an educational system. You would see an agricultural system. You would have a manufacturing system. You had people creating technologies. Maybe not the high technology we think of, because manufacturing silicon chips on a deserted island, not easy to do. But there would be some type of technology evolution going on. It might actually be a de-evolution back to primitive technologies, uh, where people create the same thing that was created before, even though no one knew about it. You might look at it and go, that's a new way to put things together, but it's probably been done in the past. We just lost the knowledge. There would be children. Not the children that were dropped off, but the children that were born to people who have decided to procreate while they were on that island. There would be a society, maybe two, if there were two factions split off if the island was big enough. But there would be a society. So to believe that we could have an economic collapse in the United States or Europe or anywhere or anything that would create a societal collapse and not rebuild, just ignored history and ignored reality and ignored human nature. So when we prepared, we had to be prepared for both a collapse and a rebuilding. Because it's been historically accurate to say that when collapses have occurred, those that were prepared for them and prepared for the other side, the, 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 the rebuilding, whether they were minor or major in nature, were the most... Uh, profitable. I guess it's the best term I can use for it. But it may not have really been about money. Prosperous is probably a better word. 
So that we needed to look at things that way. That would be part of modern survivalism. I also, as I was doing the show, I would occasionally bring in a show about politics. And I would talk about my libertarian ideals and my, my thoughts on liberty and where our nation had gone wrong and what the foundation of this country was really all about when it came to our Constitution. What our Constitution actually said, what it actually meant. The fact that when you say I have constitutional rights, you are wrong. You're absolutely wrong when you say you have constitutional rights. And that nuance was so important because it was disempowering people. That what you actually have are constitutionally protected rights. That in this nation, unlike any other nation that I know of, our constitution doesn't empower government, it empowers the people. Not in some weird sort of like, you know, way where the people are referred to but not really meant, because they're a collective, because the individual was just as recognized as the collective society in our constitution. That the rights protected by humans in our Constitution were seen as inherent human rights. And for the first time, a government acknowledged that they pre-existed government. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Those things are not bequeathed to you by government, but protected for you by government. So the, the correct way to say I have rights and, and invoke the Constitution is I have constitutionally protected rights. And a hundred years ago in our schools we taught children that they had constitutionally protected rights. Today we teach our children they have constitutional rights. We take that one word out, we change the entire meaning of the document. Where we have people today that look to the government as the grantor instead of the servant. And I have people say, I can get this from Rush Limbaugh. I'm like, no you can't. Rush Limbaugh doesn't talk about things like this. He talks about why you should vote Republican when it really comes down to it. You know? But basically, you know, why are you bringing politics into this? Because it's insufferable. Insufferable? Inseparable. Because we can't separate the two. Because the only reason that we want to survive is so that we can be human beings. And the only reason it's beneficial to be a human being is because we have liberty. No human wants to live in captivity. And everything that a government does to restrict the inherent human rights that you have, puts you one more brick into your prison cell and creates one more level of captivity for you. And I mean no human wants to live in captivity, period. Star Trek used to do uh, reality plays, they called them, about this, is what Gene Roddenberry had in mind, where this crew would be, be stuck on this planet, but it was like an Eden. And, they got, and you know, this, this, this powerful alien figure would say, you can't leave, but you'll have everything you want. Of course, they still wanted to leave. And some people look at that and go, I wouldn't want to leave. That's pretty cool. Well, no, you would want to leave. I promise you, if I set up a perfect house for you, it had you know every TV channel under the sun, movies and videos on demand, gaming systems, refrigerator, freezers stocked with everything you could want, phone, internet, you name it, every anything you could put on your dream list, and it's a 100,000 square foot mansion. When I said, hey, you want to hang out here for a couple days? You'd be like, yeah, I'll hang out here for a couple days. And I said, fine, and I left. And when I left, you heard, <laughs> the sound of prison doors uh, closing. And you went to try to open a couple doors, and none of the doors and windows would open. And you picked up a chair and tried to smash a window. You wouldn't really enjoy yourself very much after that. And if I came back 48 hours later and let you out, you'd be all freaked out and angry at me. And I'd be like, dude, I asked you if you wanted to stay here. Well, what changed? 
You may not have left for two days in a, in a palace like that. You may have been happy to stay there. But the minute you knew you couldn't leave, you felt captivity. Well, government's gotten very good at closing and locking the doors and making you not realize that you're in a prison cell. And that is a recipe for disaster. That is what creates the complacency that we talked about in the beginning. That's what creates a society that believes the government will fix it, it'll all be okay, and more importantly, even when things do go wrong, won't happen to me. Because I'm at a certain level in society where I am inherently protected. And I'm smarter than those poor suckers that didn't leave when that hurricane came. Won't happen to me. And that's why the guy with the lump in his leg waits six months before he sees his doctor, and at that point the cancer's metastasized into his bone. It is the same psychological event. It won't happen to me. I'm too important. And that's why we have to put politics in, because the politics is the cancer. And I'm not here to shill for either party. If you've listened for any length of time, you know that by now. I am a non-Democrat, non-Republican, libertarian. I don't like either party. I don't like what either party's doing. In elections, I may say, with this guy and this guy, I gotta go with this you know, dude here, because there is no third option. But I'm really not happy with what anybody's doing up there in Washington right now, or in my own state capital in Austin. I'm really dissatisfied. The only thing good that comes of it is when one side wants to do something that's wrong and the other side opposes it, but dude, they're only doing that to misdirect you anyway. You know, And that's not paranoia, that's reality. Keeping the classes divided is fundamental to the economy of this nation. Because the economy of this nation fuels the politics of this nation. The two are completely interlocked. There isn't a single member in any high office in government today who isn't bought and paid for and put into office by corporations. Now, we get to pick which one we get. The democracy part is real. The choice part is the illusion. Because there was really a big difference between John McCain and Barack Obama. Really? Now, I know you might find an issue or two, but the general direction in which the country is headed would be any different if the last election turned out differently. In fact, take out Ron Paul, who's the aberration, who's the difference, who's the libertarian, and take every polit every can every legitimate candidate for president: Mitt Romney, Mike Huckabee, Hillary Clinton, Dennis Kucinich. You take uh, was John Edwards. Any of those people would really be taking this country in a big, drastically different direction. Any one of those people would actually be looking to reduce the debt of the nation. Would any of those people actually be willing to audit the Federal Reserve and see what's going on with our nation's finances? Would any of those people do anything inherently different other than one or two of your pet issues that you're married to? No, they would not. And if we don't accept that, then we'll never change that. And eventually, these people will destroy America. Now, it may or may not be destroyed from a standpoint of world history. But they will destroy the America you and I know by changing it, hope and change, they will change it into Europe. There's a reason people leave Europe and come here. They don't want to be there anymore. If you want Europe, go to Europe. So part of our survival, and any culture's survival, this is true for you if you live in Brazil, or Turkey, or Australia, 
or France. Part of any culture's survival is not just the individual survival, but the culture's survival. And not having your culture morph and changed into something that you as a people don't want. Through, through manipulation and a lie that they can fix things for us. Government can't fix things. If we believe that they can, we stay complacent and we end up being kitchenistas, putting our clothing into our ovens because we don't bother to cook and putting our shoes into our refrigerators because there's always a dinner to be had every night. Real story. People really think like this. This is what leads to that. The economics thing was another thing that I would get quite, why do you have to bring all this economic language into this? And you start talking about, you know, indicators and price indexes and, and PE ratios and stock market terms. And, man, I just want to know how to store food. I tell you how to store food, but you better be financially educated. You don't have to be a college professor in economics, folks. I've never gone to college. I had one economics course in high school. I know what I know from reading, from paying attention, and from human logic and basic common sense. An eight-year-old knows. If you say to an eight-year-old, you're playing a game and now you have $50,000 worth of debt. And this is a problem because the people want the money. Can we solve the problem by loaning you another $50,000? They'll say no, because now I'm $100,000 in debt. And even if I pay off the 50, I'm still 50. I'm right back where I started. And if I borrow 100, so I can pay the debt and then have finances to live on, I'm in even bigger trouble. Eight-year-olds get that. Our politicians don't or they refuse to. You choose which one it is. See, the thing about politicians today, and this is why the economics and politics are tied together, they're opportunists. They don't give a flying rat's ass about 50 years from now. They care about today for themselves. They're the greediest people in America. And the only people that are worse than them are the people that buy them. Plain and simple. And those people that buy them are worse, not because they're greedier. In some ways, they're not as greedy, but because they're smarter. And they identify the greed in people that make good politicians, and they use that greed, and they're the people moving the pieces on the chessboard. And these are the corporations that make more money than most small nations. In fact, these are some of the corporations that make more money than over half the nations in the world make as a nation. And you don't think those people have massive amounts of pull and power. And you don't think those people manipulate the marketing behind our politics. You're in denial. And the reason we have to pull back the denial is not so you'll think like me. I don't care how you think. But we have to pull back denial in every place that exists so we see the reality of the threat. But then we have to change things around. And once we see all the threats, remember what I said about stress. If the human body, the mind is stressed long enough, the heart gives out. We die. So now we have to take the stress away. So we start the proactive response to all these threats. And the first one we do is we go, if the government is stupid for being in debt, then it's stupid for us to be in debt. We can't you know, be the pot calling the kettle black. If we say the government should be out of debt, the first thing we should do is get out of debt. And when somebody says some nonsensical bullshit like, well, inflation punishes uh, savers, you might as well be in debt because inflation will take care of it. You hit them in the face, metaphorically speaking. <laughs> That's bullshit. 
Get rid of your debt. You will never regret it. I haven't found one person in the history of mankind who's ever said I paid off all my debt and I wish I didn't. Not one. Find me one. Maybe I'll be open to being wrong about it. Debt's got to go. Debt's got to go because it relieves the stress and it reduces the threat profile and how it impacts you. We also have to look at one of the most fundamental realities, and I talked about this earlier, so I'll go through it fast now, is that we all have to eat every day. I would get a lot of questions about, why do you do more about guns? Why do you do more about guns? And I get some idiot saying, like, oh, every other show is about guns. I've probably done 20 gun shows out of 470. I might be high with the 20. Well, the reason I talk a hell of a lot more about eating than shooting as much as I love shooting and reloading and hunting and, and all of the outdoor sports and, and as much as I'm an advocate of the Second Amendment and I've taken training on how to defend myself and I've been a soldier in the military, as much as all that's true, I realized one thing as I started putting this together. All the tinfoil hat crap had a bunch of gun stuff in it. One problem. Two, there were millions, not millions, there were hundreds, literally, of great sources on information about guns. Podcasts, TV shows, entire channels on cable television dedicated to the gun. All the information that a person could want about guns is available. For hunting, fishing, or hunting, self-defense, outdoor usage, you name it, it was there. Tinkering, email, I mean, everything was there about guns. So it had to be part, but it didn't need to be the whole thing. But the real thing... I thought about the fact that every morning I get up and I fry up some eggs and some vegetables from the garden, you know, and at lunch I'll eat something and at dinner I'll maybe grill a steak and some jalapenos, whatever it is. Every day I would eat about three times a day. And then every other human that I saw walking around would eat every day. And then I thought about how many fights have I been in that weren't either prearranged or stupid kid stuff on, on the uh, playground. And the answer was, with, if I take those out, one. So fighting is true, and you may have to. It may, your life may depend upon it, and it may be at a point where you need to use a gun to defend yourself or what you have. But whether or not that happens tomorrow, you'll have to eat. So we better focus on food. And I also thought about the stress level. Pulling back all of these realities: political nightmare, the economic nightmare, the supply chain nightmare, the resources nightmare, uh, peak oil, peak water, peak phosphorus. You know, peak this, peak that. All of the things that actually threatened humanity, we pull that all back. That's a huge stressful thing for a human being to look at. That's why we're in denial in the first place. One of the first things that we think of as people, as fathers and mothers, I have to do what? Keep a roof over our head and food on the table. And that cliche is a cliche because it goes to the heart of the psychology of human survival and keeping not just yourself but your children alive. There are very few parents that wouldn't risk their life to save or, or, or improve even the lives of their children. And when it comes down to it, you'll do anything to make sure that your kid doesn't starve to death. That's one thing that no self-respecting adult will ever allow to happen is a child to starve in front of them, even somebody else's child. And that created a danger and it created stress. And it was one of the things that we would worry about. Food storage takes away that worry, and it also saves us money. I won't go into that today. Plenty of shows I've done on that. But when you store food smart, when you store what you eat and eat what you store, when you take part in opportunity buys, when you buy large quantities and you, you, you put them into a rotational system, you spend less money on food, not more. 
And if we took it to another level of gardening and foraging and hunting and fishing and we did all of that and we learned preservation methods and added to it, now we spend even less money. So it saved us money and we ate better and we ate healthier and if something went wrong, there was food. And that reduced the stress and it improved the lifestyle today in, in multiple ways. Just like every item in a survival kit, a wilderness survival kit, right? If I have a knife, that's a multifunctioning item. If I buy the right knife, the pommel is a hammer. The blade obviously can cut. It can be used for fire striking with flint. It can be improvised into a spear. And everything that goes in that kit should have multiple functions. It's a fundamental of wilderness survival. Well, a fundamental of modern survival is every action should have multiple benefits. So when we grow the garden, what are the multiple benefits? Just for one example, it involves food. Additional food supply in case of a disaster. Low-cost food that can be stored for long-term to reduce the cost of our food storage needs. A psychological benefit by being active outdoors and involved in something that is fundamentally human, the cultivation and collection of food. Physical exercise that makes the body in better shape along with the mind. A well-manicured garden increases the property value should you put your home up for sale and makes it more desirable. And I could keep going, but there's five benefits to one activity, and most of them affect you today. And only a couple of them are there in case tomorrow is a dark day. And everything that we do in modern survivalism, from food stores on, is got to be like that, or it doesn't fit. We also had to take another thing and realize that it was in our own self-interest to stop hiding, to stop being anonymous. And I'm not saying to run around your neighborhood and go, hey, I got six months of food stored up, everybody. That would be dumb. People say that I'm too open and I'm too forward. I'm a public figure. I am on the air five days a week, every week of the year, pouring everything I know and everything I have out. I can't be anonymous at all. You should have some level of anonymity. But you also should be a missionary. And you should talk to other people. And you should tell other people. And you should share my show. And if you don't like my show, there's plenty of resources. There's plenty of people out there doing their own version of what I do now. Share one you do like. Get people involved. And that would be the most selfish thing you could do if we would accept one other fundamental reality that's a key driver of modern survivalism. And that is that the unprepared are the most dangerous factor in a disaster, specifically once the acute portion of the disaster is over. And, and I guess the easiest way to understand that is look at a major event, something like a Hurricane Katrina. And as devastating as the storm and the floods and the winds and the lightning and the spawn tornadoes that came out of that storm were, the real disaster was in the aftermath. When the systems of support were gone, and the people were stranded, and the ones that weren't on rooftops waiting for helicopters were simply in disarray and had lost hope and took to the streets and began looting, shooting, raping, killing. And people said, well, the disaster was so much worse because the real response didn't start for three days. And the response didn't get really up and running for almost two weeks. That's not a really a very long time for somebody to survive on their own, is it? A couple weeks. It would be reasonable to believe that any able-bodied adult with just a little bit of preparedness could survive for a couple weeks. Especially in a place like New Orleans where you're not going to freeze to death. Because that would be one of the things that really could be dangerous. 
but yet the, the society of New Orleans fractured within 12 hours of the storm subsiding. Now let me ask you a question. If instead of initial real relevant help showing up within three days, if New Orleans had, or Hurricane Katrina had been a nuclear bomb detonated by terrorists, and at the same time one had gone off in Dallas, New York City, Boston, Baltimore, Los Angeles, Seattle, and San Francisco. And all of those cities were devastated to that level. How long would it have taken for help to get to New Orleans then? And what would that place have looked like by the time it got there? And how many cities that weren't even part of the bomb and weren't even getting fallout from the bombs would have had the same level of breakdown due to panic and hysteria? How many supply chains would have been collapsed? And every time a supply chain collapsed, what would it do? How many people would not go to work then? And how many other supply chains would collapse? And how long would it have taken for the entire nation to have grinded to a halt? And what would that have done to the civilized portion of society? How long would they have stayed civilized? And the answer is not very long. And our government ran scenarios during the Cold War when they looked at nuclear war especially like a partial strike nuclear war where a lot of people were still left alive and they said without law enforcement and without hope and when people really think it's bad how long can society hold things together on their own and every scenario they ran came out to about 48 hours and that 96 hours into it we had Mad Max Because it's what people that are unprepared do because they panic. And they're the threat. They are a bigger threat than the disaster. They're a bigger threat than the EMP. Unless you happen to be doing something with high voltage at the wrong time when we're hit by an EMP. An EMP is not going to kill you. It's going to make your radio, your TV, your computer, and your car not run. What will kill you is the society around you who is completely unprepared, panicking. So modern survivalism had to include evangelism. Not religious evangelism. But simply making other people aware of the threat. There it is. Here's a solution. Do what you like with the information. A very soft sell. Because the more people that are prepared the less people run out into the streets and go into hysteria. The most selfish thing we can do as survivalists is create more of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a big concept that the media portrays about people like us. We're hoarders. We're hoarding all this stuff, and poor people don't have it. That's exactly the opposite. Preppers are not hoarders. Preppers use their own resources to purchase surplus in times of plenty so that during a crisis, they don't have to hoard. Hoarding is when there's a storm coming, and somebody runs to the store who needs one loaf of bread, and buys six, and one gallon of milk, and buys four. And then throws a couple bags of rice in the cart, just because they saw that on TV, and they don't even know how to freaking cook rice. And they starts grabbing everything they can get, because the storm's coming. Hoarding is the person that... Right before the gas price goes up because the hurricane's coming inland, runs out and buys 20 gas cans, which cost way more than the increased price of gasoline, 
all at once, strips them off the shelves of Walmart, and then runs down and instead of taking 20 gallons of gasoline from the gas station, takes 100. And then comes back out on the street and starts selling a 5-gallon can of gas for 50 bucks in the aftermath. That's a hoarder. See, preppers don't have to do that. They've already got the additional fuel stored. They did it during a time when everybody could do it if they wanted to. They've already got the additional food stored. They did it when all those long, pretty aisles in the grocery store were still full. When the new truck was going to come every 48 hours, just like it's supposed to, and resupply the store. Preppers are the antithesis of hoarding. Prepping prevents hoarding. Prepping is living smart. Prepping is living the way your grandparents lived. And certainly the way your great-grandparents lived. Because we didn't have this facade in front of us that the systems would always work. Hey, your great-grandparents, they probably saw cars. There were cars and there were roads and there was a railroad and there was ways that people could get things from one point to another. They had a store to go to. They had all the stuff that we do today, really, but it was a lot more clear at the time all the things that made it go. It would be like having a car where everything in the car was transparent, made out of some kind of uh, modern uh, synthetic that is as strong as steel and can do everything steel can do, yet is as clear as glass. Where you could look through the engine of your car and you could see the pistons and the camshafts and all the stuff that only people like me that were mechanics or gearheads even know about or care about. And you could realize that, hey, that one wire actually takes a signal to that spark plug and if that one wire fails the vehicle's not going to run well and its performance will, will, will decline and if it loses two of those wires it probably won't run at all in fact losing one is going to be eventually the, the thing is going to fail anyway hey and look at that little tiny valve that that oil squirts through if that little valve gets clogged up the mo- oil's not going to circulate and the motor will overheat and seize up they were aware of the valves and the wires in their systems, even though there were no valves and wires. You get the metaphor. They got it because it was visible. They could see it. All this great modern technology and this good stuff has created a veil, an opaqueness over the points of failure that we don't see. We have to acknowledge them. We don't acknowledge them. We'll never take corrective action. We'll never live like our grandparents. And here's the thing. If you took your great-grandparents and put them into this modern age, and you might maybe remember a great-grandparent when they were old and feeble, when they were your age, young and strong, and, and wise, quick to wit, and you gave them the opportunity they have today, they would become, in 10 years' time, the wealthiest people you've ever seen in your life. Maybe not Bill Gates wealthy, but wealthy from a standpoint of quality of life and lack of stress. Because they would take all of these modern conveniences... And that old world wisdom, and they would put the two together. And when somebody sent them a credit card application, they'd shred that son of a bitch fast. They wouldn't even read it. Who the hell is this mask? What the hell is a mask on the compost bin? Well, why can't we do the same thing? They would have to adapt to modern technology to pull it off, which would be pretty easy for them to do. We just have to adapt to, you know, 10,000 years of ingrained reality from their side, to be able to pull the same things off. And that's what modern survivalism is really all about. It's about 
building that better life today. Because we can. Because we have the opportunity. Real quick as I finish up today, I want to talk about another stereotype that survivalists get made out to be is that we're paranoid. So we're, we're paranoid. You know, we're all just sure somebody's out to get us or something's out to get us. There's a difference between planning and paranoia. Paranoia is an unfounded belief that somebody or something may do you harm. Planning is an acceptance that there are things and occurrences and people that may indeed do you harm that are real, not imagined. In other words, planning is looking both ways before you cross the street because of the reality that there's a car there. To say that if I don't look and just walk across the street, I could get run over is not paranoia. Yet the things that we do that are the exact same type of logic are called paranoia, and remember why. Not because people are bad, not because they're the enemy, but because the human mind does not want to accept that it's in danger when it's not forced to. If you accept the fact that a modern survivalist who has food stored and uh, paid off all his debt, doesn't live on credit cards, and does everything the opposite of the way that the normal person lives, is right, it's an acknowledgement of the danger. So the only defense is to call people that do these things paranoids. But let's see how many of the... Let's just go through a few and see if it's paranoia or planning. When we put together a blackout kit because the lights in our house may go out for some period of time and we may need to get around our homes, is that planning or paranoia? Is it possible that it will occur? Is it a real or imagined eventuality? Obviously it's real because it happens all the time. When we save up some food, when we say one way or another, it may be difficult or impossible for us to go to the grocery store. Has that ever happened to anybody in the United States in the last five years multiple times? Yes, 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 yes. So is it planning or is it paranoia? Is the threat real or imagined? When we save gold and silver is a hedge against inflation because the value of the dollar might go down, is that threat real or imagined? You know what? Go to one of those little novelty stores, like the little country store, Cracker Barrel restaurants or something like that, and pull out one of those little books they call Remember When. Pick one up from 1960 and read what a house cost, a car cost, an average salary was. And then pick one up from you know the, the latest year that they have and compare the two. So is the threat of the devaluation of our money real or imagined? Is the saving of a commodity that hedges against that planning or paranoia? See, as human beings, we're the only creature that we know of in the universe. In the universe, that, again, that we know of. That can actually look to the future comprehend and understand a threat and formulate a plan to deal with it before it happens. A squirrel buries a nut because he's hardwired to do it. He doesn't really comprehend the winner, especially in his first year. He's never seen it before. Squirrels do not talk to each other the way they do in cartoons. Son, you need to save some, some nuts. Okay, mommy. No, it doesn't happen that way. It's instinctual. It's not rational, it's not logical, it's not planned. And yet the squirrel just demonstrates more intelligence in that action than the average modern uh, civilized human being who doesn't store any nuts, metaphorically again. But we have that gift. 
to acknowledge it, to be grateful for it, and to utilize it is not paranoia. It is an acceptance of a wonderful gift as a life form that we have, the ability to self-preserve. Both our societies, our ideals, our concepts, our cultures, our lives, and the lives of our children. No other life form is gifted with that. And what do we, what do we say to do to it? Those that do it are paranoid. Nonsense. That's the stupidest thing that's really ever come out of modern society. That to be prepared for a disaster is paranoia. It's planning. Be prepared and plan. And what I want to finish up with today is why you really can have a better life today as a modern survivalist. What's in it for me? That's another thing that I knew had to be part of this. I mean, you look at exercise and diet. Decent diet, a little bit of exercise and activity, all that good stuff. Maybe you walk, go to the gym, whatever it is that you do. Eating right, you know. Not eating four pieces of cake for dessert, things like that. Not piling corn syrup and sugar and, 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 and just eating a, a decent, well-balanced diet and doing some exercise. Now, why do people do that? We'd like to believe that people do that so that when they're 52, they won't be laying on a table with their chest cracked open having a coronary bypass. We'd like to believe that. Society has convinced us that that's kind of why we do it. Bullshit. Because every diet program, every exercise program shows us what? People that are in perfect physical shape that are appealing to the eye. Because the actual motivation to do exercise and nutrition is so you can look like the little chippy, uh, peppy chick bouncing up and down on a trampoline on late night television trying to sell you some DVD that's probably bullshit. Right? Or you can look like that guy that says I'm 49 and I'm a rock star that's on the Bowflex or however old he is. Right? with his muscles and he's all cut. He doesn't even really look like that because they, they, they starved him for three days and put him in a tanning booth for three days and fed him diuretics for three days before they took his picture. But that is why people are motivated. That's what motivates them to exercise and diet. The health benefits, which should be the primary reason we do it, are secondary. They're a side effect. People act on what's in it for me now, now here's the reality. If somebody would go out, not exercise for one day, right, and eat one really nasty, bad for you, cholesterol-filled, crap-filled, additive-filled, you know, chemical-filled meal, and that night, on their way out of the restaurant, would fall over on the ground and die, and you walked past them and, 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 and you said, what happened to him? Why did he die? As they were loading him into the hearse. And the paramedic said, he didn't exercise today and he ate bad today. You'd run home and get the Bowflex out. You'd be like, oh man, I gotta, I gotta exercise. You'd be like throwing shit out of your, refri- I can't eat this, I can't eat that, right? I'm not gonna eat any more of this shit. I can modified crap, right? We'd be motivated to do all that. Now. Because you would die tomorrow if you didn't. But instead, what you're motivated by is losing five pounds, fitting into those genes from two years ago. What does this have to do with modern survivalism? I had to build something, a philosophy of living that would allow you to get that effect today. And the secondary effect was gravy. And you really can have a better life. Because let me define for you the way I live. And you tell me if my life's not better than the average American's. I was not perfect. I screwed up and I went deeply into debt. About $25,000 in consumer debt, 
I had two car payments at the same time on top of that. That was another $20,000. So call it $45,000. And uh, in about two and a half years, I took that to zero. And I took my credit cards and I put them through the shredder and I've never used one ever again. Ever. Ever. And the only thing that prevented me from doing was allowing my son to pre-order an iPhone at the AT&T store. That's the only thing that's affected me negatively in any way and I didn't think he really needed it. He came home and got one online. So it really didn't even affect that. There was another way. But I have no debt. I have two trucks, a car, an RV, and a boat. And I have no debt. I have two houses. I have a mortgage on the house. But it's well under the value of the house, even in the repressed market. Eventually, and my wife's kind of warming to the idea now, we're finally going to be able to bug out probably this fall. Uh, if, the, if the market changes, maybe we'll do it in the spring. But we're going to finally move to Arkansas. And I gave her the extra time because she needed it. But we sell this house and we move. We pay off the other house. Just, we have owed nothing to anybody. Five acres on the middle of a mountain in the middle of you know middle of nowhere. But yet I can drive and be with people if I want to in 20 minutes. I get up and I do what I love every day. And I'm so grateful to every single one of you that helps me do that by sharing what I do with other people. Thank you. If I can't go to the grocery store tonight, it won't matter. I can make any type of meal that I want to make. If I have guests coming over, I can make anything that I want for my guests. I don't have to run out at the last minute and borrow something. Every time we make a dollar, we're able to save about half of it now. My son, who's grown up in a household with this philosophy, is 20 years old and has over $6,000 in his basic savings account. He has CDs and an IRA. He's not making a lot of money. <clears throat> he makes, I think, $8 an hour working part-time. And he's through two years of college. He has no student loan debt. I have a wonderful wife, I have two dogs, two cats, I have a beautiful yard, a garden, and a pool, and no debt to go with it. I'm prepared for the biggest disasters that could come my way, and I'm prepared for little hiccups. And yet I wake up every day and I live the life that I love. Other than this show, I am effectively retired at the age of 38. If it took me till 48, big Freaking deal. If it took me till 58, I'm still kicking the ass out of 85% of society. I do what I love every day because I followed my passion and I accepted the risks that were inherent to life and I insured against them. Every person listening to me can have your version of that. You can't have what I have because I built what is mine based on who I am and my personality and what I actually wanted. And the first step was to figure out what the hell I actually wanted. You figure out what you want and how you want it and then you take the basic philosophy and you can do it in 10 years or less. Now, your version may look entirely different than mine. You may have a beautiful little urban homestead right in the heart of downtown San Francisco because that's what you want and still be prepared. You may be out in the middle of Idaho completely to the other extreme from me. And you could be anything in between. 
You could be working a job every day because you're actually in a job you love, you could own your own business, or you could have prepped yourself into retirement. If you're preparing to live without systems of support, eventually you don't need a job anymore. Or if you do have a job, it's only so you can have more. And because you want to do the work in the first place. That's what modern survivalism actually creates. That's the reality that awaits anybody. Will everybody that tries it succeed? No, I would be lying and full of shit if I told you that. Absolutely full of shit if I told you that. But everybody that really wants it, that really tries and doesn't try to be false. You don't try to be like me. You're true to who you are and you just marry the philosophy to yourself. And you change it as you need to to make it fit you. You can have your version of it. Every single person that really wants it can have it. It is that simple. Because it's it's a law in effect. It's actually a law. And I don't mean a law like somebody passed the law. I mean a real law like gravity. You drop shit, it falls. Okay. When you take and you build something with intent, eventually you get there. Ships leave harbors every day. And they travel all over the world and they always get to where they're going because they have a map and a route planned and the ability to navigate. But if you send the greatest captain in the world out to shift and don't tell him where he's supposed to end up, he'll never get there. When you put that into your life, that planning process into your life, not paranoia but planning, and you put it in there with redundancy so when something doesn't work you have a fallback plan. So you have exit strategies. You don't buy a house without a freaking exit strategy, America. You don't do it. Then you don't have going, I can't sell my house. Of course you can't. You didn't have an exit strategy when you bought it. You financed 110% of the price of the property while the real estate market was at an all-time high and now you can't help sell your house. No shit. That's how it works because you built no redundancy into your plan. And you weren't being true to yourself because if you were, it would have never happened. Don't blame anybody else. There's plenty of people out there that have aggravated this situation, that have made it worse, but when it comes down to whatever situation you're in, on some degree you played a part in it. Until you stop denying it, you can't fix the problem. No one will fix it but you. But if you will fix it, you can have anything you want in this world. You may have to give something else up to get it. So you have to figure out what you really want and what's really important to you and follow that. Do that and you'll find yourself building that better life today so you can live that better life tomorrow. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Trying to help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Nobody up there